0: This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. You're listening to Most Innovative Companies. I'm Josh Christensen. On today's episode, we have another highlight from Fast Company's Innovation Festival this past fall in New York City. This panel is a one on one with Marriott International CEO Tony Capuano. Enjoy! It is my great pleasure to introduce perhaps the most well-traveled individual who has ever attended the Fast Company Innovation Festival. If you think you are a road warrior, take note. Marriott CEO Tony Capuano spent more than... 170 nights on the road in the past year. He was making up for lost time because he became CEO in February 2021 when international travel was obviously very restricted. He has seen his company and its 30 brands, its 8,100 hotels and 1.5 million rooms through the pandemic into this time when travel is resurgent. Tony, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's great to be here.
0: (laughs) So, Tony, I want to start with that moment in February 2021 when you became CEO. That was obviously an incredible, challenging time for the hospitality industry, and revenue for Marriott had dropped a full 49% in 2020, if I have that right. But it was also a pivotal time for Marriott in particular because uh, the CEO from the past decade, Arne Sorensen, had just passed away suddenly. I'd love for you to take us back to that moment when you became CEO. What were your priorities at that moment? What were your first actions? So a
1: few things. Bill Marriott, who recently retired as our chairman, he served as chairman and CEO for 40 years of the company. And only the second chairman and CEO in the company's 95-year history. So he's been through global conflict, recessions, the Great Recession, 9-11, and I think he characterized it accurately. He said the pandemic was the single biggest challenge that the sector and our company ever faced in the midst of trying to navigate that. and, And remember, at that time, we still didn't have great clarity into how severe the crisis would be, how long it might last, when vaccines would be broadly available. And then against that backdrop, our beloved friend and mentor, Arnie, who had been the first non-Marriott family CEO and had led the company in a pretty extraordinary way for almost a decade, passed away unexpectedly. We knew he was ill, but had come through some really difficult medical procedures, and we were all quite optimistic. So the priorities were in no particular order. We obviously had to stabilize the company's financial position. I've been with Marriott for almost 30 years And if anybody critiqued uh, our stewardship of our balance sheet, I think their criticism would be we'd been conservative. But I can assure you in the the 28 years I've been there, not once did I see somebody run an economic model that said, what if revenue drops 90% overnight? And so in the first seven weeks after the pandemic really unfolded, we had to raise about $8 billion of liquidity to ensure that we could weather at least the first portion of the storm. So stabilizing the company financially, taking care of our associates, which is a a core value that has guided the company for almost a century, doing everything we could to support them. And of our 8,100 hotels that you mentioned, we only own 20. So we are principally a manager and a franchisor of hotels. So doing everything we could, even in a weakened position, to try to support our owners and franchisees who were similarly impacted. As travel started to open up a bit, We had to, in a matter of days, retool our operating and cleaning protocols for 8,100 hotels around the world, procure all the supplies we needed to roll out those new cleaning protocols. When we bought Starwood, we underwrote that $14 billion transaction in three and a half weeks. And I remember being here in New York when we closed the deal, thinking...
0: That was 2016?
1: correct. And I remember thinking that when I retire someday, I'll look back and say that was the most intense three and a half weeks of my career. I would say that paled in comparison to the first few months of the pandemic.
0: So fast forward a year and a half and the world is traveling again. Your revenue per available room was up 70% year over year. The airline industry apparently can't keep up, much to everybody's chagrin. Um, What's driving this demand? What kind of travel are we pursuing right now?
1: It is remarkable. I mean, two years almost to the day after we were faced with this challenge. In the first quarter of this year, we reinstated our dividend. Second quarter this year, we restarted uh, stock buybacks. In July of this year, global revenue per available room, which is the metric we use to gauge the relative health of our business, was up 2% relative to 2019, up 3% here in the US, our largest market. The recovery has most certainly been led by the leisure segment which is meaningfully ahead of where we were pre-pandemic. As of July, the group meeting and conference segment has fully recovered. Business travel is slower, but you almost have to look at it in two buckets. Small and medium-sized companies have largely recovered to pre-pandemic levels of demand. Larger companies in urban cores. The good news is we've seen sequential month after month improvement, but not back to 2019. When, when I think about what's driven such a, a rapid recovery, there's a few factors. Number one, all of us learned how much we miss travel. I don't think we've gotten close to the bottom of the barrel of pent-up demand that was created by the events of the last few years. Number two, even pre-pandemic, we started to see a psychographic shift away from investment in hard goods towards investment in experiences. That phenomenon tended to shade younger, but I think the last two years have acted as an accelerant, forced a shift across multiple generations. Third, in many markets around the world, particularly here in the U.S., household balance sheets are exceedingly strong, and notwithstanding the volatility that we're seeing in the public markets, the employment number and the confidence of the consumer continues to be relatively strong.
0: So what does that mean for you when you're looking at your vast portfolio of hotels? If business travel, traditional business travel is a little sluggish, leisure is strong, group travel is strong, are you shifting your emphasis to different brands, to different locations, to different global regions?
1: Well, the strength of leisure is not necessarily a pandemic-driven phenomenon. Even back in 17, 18, 19, Leisure was our fastest-growing segment. That's why we entered the all-inclusive space. It's why there was a disproportionate focus on growth in leisure destinations, an effort to grow our resort portfolio more aggressively. It has forced some of our city hotels to be a bit more creative. And part of the necessity for that creativity is this trend we've seen of blended trip purpose.
0: You're not going to say the word leisure. I hate that word. I never <laughs>
1: say it. But, but it is a phenomenon. It's real. We can measure it. And it appears to have legs well beyond the end of the pandemic. We hosted just a month or so ago here in New York. We had 500 corporate and association meeting planners here for a three-day meeting. And this was certainly not scientific. But when I was on stage, I did a straw poll. And I said, how many of you tacked on a couple leisure days here in New York pre or post, 80 or 90% of the hands in the audience went up. And so if you check into our hotel for four days, and in the first two days, you're dressed in business apparel, the second two days, you're in shorts and flip-flops, we've got to think about how we're programming our food and beverage outlets. Do we have the right fitness and wellness programming in the hotel? If we're gonna have children, do we have lifeguards? Are we programming activities at the pool? So it has required some innovation on the programming side. It's not easy in the blink of an eye to change the physical layout, but the programming, we've made some pretty significant pivots.
0: So a sort of straight business hotel with no amenities that would please anybody outside of that is well, I, uh, gonna city become
1: hotels, rare. New York is an outlier because it's such a popular leisure destination but in more traditional urban cores, those have been the markets to most slowly recover.
0: So I've always thought of sort of um, points and miles as being the gateway drug to global travel for a certain person who in their early career as a road warrior and, you know, racking up those miles and those points, um, do you think if business travel doesn't return to where it was pre-pandemic, is sort of the loyalty program scene going to change? Are we going to see less of these points in miles towns and a little bit more of a experiential kind of loyalty program?
1: Well, I, I'm not sure we'll use gateway drug in our marketing <laughs> programs, but... Uh,
0: This is why I'm an editor and not (laughs) not Um, What I
1: will say to you is this. uh, The the loyalty program, Bonvoy, is, is tremendously powerful. It's got about 170 million members. The penetration we see from those members in our hotels is well north of 50%. So it is a powerful platform. I think what you'll see in the coming years is the continued evolution of that platform. Our relationship with our Bonvoy members today is too transactional for my taste. If you go on the app today and you need to book or modify or cancel or check your points balance, it's great, it looks great, it's very functional. That relationship needs to evolve into a more emotional relationship. It is maddening to me we had not completed that evolution prior to the pandemic, because imagine a circumstance where somebody was traveling 50 or 75 nights a year, big loyalty player, suddenly was locked down for two years. I would have liked to have used that platform to say to them, we're going to get past this. In the interim, we have a new relationship with Uber. So every time you order Uber Eats to your home, you're going to be earning Bonvoy points. Let's be optimistic. Let's think, what is that trip you're dying to take when this is behind us? Hawaii, great. Let's start using the chat functionality on the app to talk to the lead concierge at the Ritz Carlton Kapalua in Maui and start to build out your itinerary. And then every time you order Uber Eats, you're getting a little note from us saying you're that many points closer to that dream Hawaiian vacation. But I want to go back to the premise of your question. Early in the pandemic, you had many experts opining on the future of business travel. You had Bill Gates saying 50 percent of business travel would never come back. Now, he was saying that as he was selling us Microsoft Teams for video (laughs) conferencing. But you had others saying 25% may never come back, 10%. So I get that question quite a bit. The way I respond is I do not for a minute believe that travel is permanently impaired. What I do think is that because of this blended trip purpose, it may be harder and harder for us to tell you a year or two from now precisely the mix of our demand by segment And that's great. If you check in for that four-day trip that I described, I'm not going to interrogate you at the front desk. I'm not going to say, how many of these nights are business travel, how many are leisure travel? But I love accommodating you for four nights. So we're seeing it already. Demand is back. It's back strong. Business travel continues to improve. It may just look and feel a bit different than it did in 2019.
0: So uh, that sort of leads us to the idea of service. Stepping back to, to the pandemic, I know that Marriott had to reduce its workforce by full 30% in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how you maintain morale and Marriott's culture. I mean, this is a... a 95-year-old companies steeped in culture. You've been there nearly 30 years steeped in culture. How do you maintain culture? How do you maintain morale when you're reducing your workforce by 30%? And then how do you fill those ranks again in sort of this tight labor market that we're in now?
1: I was with Bill Merritt yesterday, and uh, I chatted with him a little bit about this. He has this phrase. He loves to say "You can't wake up Monday morning and decide to create a culture. You can have the idea for the creation of a culture, but it takes decades of living your core values and by your actions, not your words, demonstrating your commitment to those core values. And those core values were our our true north, even in the darkest times of the pandemic. The other thing I will tell you is we like to talk about something uh, as a secret weapon, which is a set of organizations we have called our Marriott Business Councils. We have over 100 business councils around the world. They're made up of general managers. They are volunteering their time and effort to engage in their local communities, to reinforce our core values, to strengthen our culture. And I could sit here for hours and tell you these remarkable stories about what those teams did in the early days of the pandemic and what our associates did. You had associates who had been furloughed because, remember, in in the early days of the pandemic of our 8,100 hotels, more than 2,000 were shuttered. I mean, we can grin a little bit now when we think about it. Many of those hotels... They didn't have keys. They maybe didn't have locks on the door. (laughs) Our business is a 24 hour a day business. So they had to figure out a way to to shutter these hotels. But even associates at those hotels who had been furloughed were coming back and saying, what are you going to do with the food in the walk-in if it's going to spoil? Let us take it to our colleagues who've been furloughed. Let us take it to local shelters. And there are just hundreds and hundreds of stories about the work that the business councils did during the pandemic, and that's probably the most powerful lever we have. But I have been pretty public in saying that because the crisis was so severe, we had to make heart-wrenching decisions in the early days to ensure the survival of the enterprise, but it bruised our culture. And I'm deliberate saying bruised versus wounded, because if cared for, hopefully bruises heal, Um, but we've got some work to do. And even just recently, we've made some meaningful changes to our 401k plan. We are reinstituting our employee stock purchase plan. We're exploring ways to offer tuition-free, higher education to our associates. So we are making meaningful investments beyond all the flowery language about culture to try and rebuild some of the impact that the last two years had on that culture.
0: There's been a lot sort of written and talked about about how the, you know, service industry workers were sort of left obviously decimated and demoralized by the pandemic. I mean, what do you hear from your hotel employees? Do they have different expectations from Marriott as an employer?
1: So maybe I'll talk about the sector more broadly and then Marriott more specifically. My view is that pre-pandemic The workforce at large always viewed the travel and tourism sector as a a safe harbor. Mm. There were always plentiful jobs. You could build a long career there. People were always going to travel. Hotels and restaurants and airplanes and cruise ships were always going to be full. That confidence was rattled over the last couple of years. For Marriott, we were quick in the early days of having to make these tough decisions. We went to a bunch of our partners and customers that did need to increase their workforce. So we went to CVS, we went to Walgreens, we went to Walmart, Target, Amazon, and they loved the hospitality focus of our associates. We were able to place tens of thousands of Marriott associates who were temporarily furloughed into those jobs. Many of them came running back. They missed the culture. And the vast majority, they've chosen a life of service. And so one of the most gratifying things for me as I'm on the road, as I mentioned to you earlier, I was in Japan last week and Japan is slowly opening. There is some confidence that the borders are going to open more fully in the next few weeks. But being in our hotels, our associates could hardly stop grinning, right? Because their hotels are starting to fill up again. And that's what they're passionate about is taking care of each other and taking care of our guests. So again, I think leaning on that culture and reminding ourselves that we, we select people who are passionate. These are tough jobs. And if you're not passionate about being in the service industry, you're likely not going to be satisfied.
0: You have recently been appointed this, uh, to the board of McDonald's. I wonder, you know, which is in the quick service industry, mm. um, what parallels do you see between what you're doing and what M- McDonald's does?
1: Well, admittedly, I haven't been to my first board meeting yet. So (laughs) I'll tell you what my opinion is, although I I could be off. But a few things. They, like us, are heavily reliant on a franchisee community. And if that's your business model, strengthening those relationships, particularly during periods of of difficulty, is critical to your long-term success. They rely on, as you point out, service employees, The war for talent, especially for those hourly positions, is as tough as it's ever been. So they face those challenges. And like many in the the travel and tourism sector, they are exploring ways to leverage technology, not just as a cost-cutting way, but to make their relationship with their customers stickier. Mm.
0: This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can
1: rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com.
0: So speaking of McDonald's, there was a a lot of press over the summer when McDonald's sold off all of its Russian assets. I'd love to talk to you about the less well-publicized Marriott's exit from Russia was um, significant and also in some ways more complex.
1: So McDonald's, I I mean, personally, I applauded what they did. That was 9% of their global sales volume. And if you read the statement they put out, fundamentally, they said continuing to do business in Russia does not match our core values, which I found admirable. But as you point out, they owned that business. So it was wholly in their control. They executed a transaction and walked away. We had 29 hotels in Russia at the start of the conflict. We didn't own a single one. We either managed or franchised that portfolio. And we had valid contracts with each and every one of those owners. We also had a bunch of our associates living and working in Russia. And so it was more complex. Almost immediately, we took some actions that were within our control. We shuttered our Moscow office. We hit the pause button on any projects in the pipeline. And we ceased all investment in that market. And then immediately pivoted to discussions with our owners and franchisees about our intention to ultimately leave the market. But we had to negotiate that 29 times if there was any encouraging thing that came out of that terrible set of circumstances, it was two. Number one, the manner in which our company rallied to raise both cash and in-kind donations to support refugees was extraordinary. Secondly, in the early days, I spoke to our president in Europe, and I said, what are you hearing from our workforce? Are they frustrated that we're not moving more quickly to withdraw from Russia? And, and on reflection, I shouldn't have been surprised, but what he said is, they have the opposite view. And that view is, yes, we should move towards that, but don't leave our colleagues flapping in the wind. Mm. We care about our fellow colleagues working in Russia. Make sure you're doing everything you can to support them, perhaps to find them work opportunities in, in adjacent Eastern European countries. and And we were able largely to do that And uh, once those two exercises were complete, we pulled out.
0: So you don't need me to tell you that people are increasingly looking to the private sector to weigh in on political, geopolitical, social issues. Um, You have service workers based all around the United States. You know the question that's coming. Can you talk to us about how you've approached abortion access for your employees who work in states where it's severely restricted or will be?
1: Of course. So maybe I'll, again, talk more macro. Um, rightly or wrongly, the general public and I think workforces expect their company leadership to speak out on issues. We're very deliberate about when and where we speak. We want to make sure we have an informed point of view. We want to speak out on issues that are impactful to our workforce. And we want to be thoughtful. I mean, we particularly here in the US, uh, on many of these issues, it's hard to please everyone. You almost know you're going to please 41 and upset 49. Some of them are pretty easy. When there was that horrible series of anti-Asian violence across the U.S., I came out. I had not been in the role long, but very forcefully. The Supreme Court decision obviously impacts a number of our associates. And we came out relatively quickly and said... We are moving to modify our suite of health benefits to ensure that it more fully covers a variety of procedures, including those related to reproductive
0: health. Do you feel pressure to speak out more forcefully, not just on how you're changing your benefits, but on the actual politics, given how it materially affects the health of your employees?
1: We almost have to look on a, an issue-by-issue issue basis and determine, is Marriott really in a position to speak authoritatively, or should we look at it more through that put-people-first lens? And in this case, that's how we decided to go forward. There have been instances, maybe much to my frustration, where collectively we concluded the Marriott podium was not the right one. Unfortunately, they're starting to blend together, but you may recall that terrible grocery store shooting in Boulder, Colorado. A dear, dear friend of mine was one of the victims in that shooting, and, you know, I showed up the next day ready to fire off a a public statement, and the conclusion we reached was I should obviously feel empowered to speak out personally, um, but that probably wasn't an issue where Marriott should speak out. Hmm.
0: That's very interesting. So you are coming to New York right on the heels of last night. You officially opened the new headquarters for Marriott in Bethesda, Maryland. That project is six years in the making. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know what these new headquarters originally were supposed to look like and what they look like now in the era of hybrid work.
1: Not terribly dissimilar. I mean, the the catalysts for building this new headquarters were dual. Number one, the lease was expiring on our old building. And number two, as we looked at that building, which served us well for almost 40 years, and we thought about the workforce that we want and need to attract in the coming years, it was missing all of the things that that workforce expects and demands. It was not state-of-the-art building in terms of technology. It was in a classic late 70s, early 80s suburban office park, without amenities within walking distance, without proper access to public transportation. And so that combination of factors caused us to think about moving to a new headquarters. For those of you that have never been to Bethesda, downtown Bethesda is a growing, vibrant suburb of Washington. I think from our headquarters, there are 50-ish Restaurants within walking distance. It's a one or two block walk to the metro station. So it met all of those criteria. The only change of significance we made during that six year development period was we probably took about 20% of the workstations and repurposed those for collaboration spaces. We already had quite a bit of collaboration space built into the building with an eye towards more and more of our work being cross-disciplinary project work, whether it was a day project or a year project, but we thought that would even be more important. And so we, thankfully, the construction was in its infancy and we had the ability to make that pivot.
0: You also have in there, is, am I getting it right? Room 27, is that right? We do. It's your, we are at the Innovation yep. Festival. This is your, your innovation lab within the new headquarters. Can you walk us through some people who aren't in hospitality? We may not know sort of what goes into creating a new product. So what happens in Room 27?
1: The team is ecstatic because it is purpose-built space. In the old headquarters, there was an old, dirty, legal record storage room that we converted into some innovation space, (laughs) and it worked fine. But this is purpose-built space. The thing I like about it, it is not for show. If you came and visited us once a quarter, every time you came, that space would look different because we are in there building and tinkering. One of the most unique calls I got during the construction of the building was about a month delay that we had in the project because we had to have a certain type of venting built into that space for a welding torch. (laughs) And I said, what on earth are we doing with a welding torch? But we have an associate who his nickname is The Builder. He's down there building stuff. So what goes on in there? We have about 100,000 five by seven guest bathrooms in the United States the old style bathroom where the door barely clears the the front of the toilet. And so we brought in six bath design companies. And we said, here's a budget, build the best five by seven bathroom you can build. Then some number of months later, we brought in about a hundred of our disabled Bonvoy members. And we built a guest room, but out of styrofoam so that things were easily moved. Mm. And we said, what are we doing wrong? I I know we're meeting the legal requirements of the ADA Act, but what are we doing wrong? And so as a result of that exercise, we changed bed heights a little bit for our members who were in wheelchairs. We realized that we didn't have braille buttons on the thermostat. And so our blind members had no way to to understand exactly uh, how the thermostat worked. So we did experimentation there. We are rolling out our Fairfield brand in Europe In Europe, in the economy tier, the guest rooms tend to be much smaller. So we actually built a guest room with movable walls. And we're rotating members through and letting them feel the guest room in different width configurations to get their reaction. The other thing, though, that we've done there, in addition to room 27, and 27 is the year the company was founded, right across the pedestrian plaza from our headquarters. We have a new headquarters hotel, and it's a core Marriott hotel owned by a third party. We manage, but we actually leased a floor in the hotel, and we call that floor 57, which was the first year we pivoted to the hotel business, and we're building 13 model rooms. Now, we had model rooms in the old headquarters building, but they were like Hollywood facades. You know, they had cardboard walls and fake scenes outside the window. These are real working guest rooms. So you may come to stay with us, and we may say, if you'd be willing to stay in our new prototype residence in-room and meet with our brand team for an hour, we'll cut your rate in half. And so they are real working laboratory rooms. And so our ability to innovate on product and service has grown exponentially as a result of the move to the new headquarters.
0: I just want to say, I'm going to turn it over to questions to the audience in just a moment. So think of your questions. But just one follow-up. When we spoke last week, you were talking about the three innovations that Bill Marriott introduced when he was CEO that really reshaped the hospitality industry. that would be loyalty programs, a multi-tiered brand strategy, and yield management, which may be a little bit behind the scenes, but is mm-hmm. incredibly powerful. What innovations do you think will come out of Marriott in the next decade that will reshape the, the hospitality industry?
1: Uh, certainly, loyalty. We were the first to launch loyalty in the hotel sector, and I think the the plans we have around loyalty will be transformational in terms of our relationship with our most loyal guests. I think our products will continue to evolve. In my prior role, among my responsibilities, I ran our global development group, and it is fascinating to me when I started in development in 1997. We acquired Renaissance Hotels and Resorts and walked around patting ourselves on the back saying, that's our lifestyle brand. Uh, I think we were the only ones that were convinced it was our lifestyle brand. But if you fast forward to today, starting in the select service tier with Moxie, all the way up through Edition and W, we have a really impressive stack of lifestyle-focused brands. And what's interesting to me, not only are they with increasing frequency resonating with our guests, but with our development partners as well. And so I think you'll continue to see some pretty important innovation in product and service profile for our lifestyle brands. And then lastly, technology. We are in the middle of a billion-plus dollar technology transformation of all of our systems. And the ability that will give us to focus on guest needs, I think there was a Saturday Night Live skit once about somebody checking in at an airline counter And they stared at the top of the head of the agent while they clicked away for 15 minutes. Um, There's a little bit of that in hotels today. This technology will free up our associates to really engage with our customers.
0: So it's not going to be automation full stop. No, I mean, we are in the people business. But
1: again, I talked about this need to pivot as the expectations of guests change. There will be times where last night, for instance, I arrived here in the evening. I was leaving this morning. I probably don't want to go to the front desk. I want to check in on the app. I want to get my mobile key. I want to go straight to my room. If I go on vacation with my family, I want to talk to the front desk. I want to talk to the concierge. I want to get restaurant recommendations. I want to find out where I should go run, all these sorts of things. So we've got to be able to serve both sets of needs and often those dual sets of needs are from the same customer.
0: All right, questions from the audience. I saw, I think there might be mics coming around, but if you want to stand up and just. Hi.
1: Hi, hello, hello. Um, as I was mentioning, Marriott has a lot of brands in your portfolio. From your perspective, what do you believe is currently missing from a, either a brand experience um, perspective that could enhance or target a new type of uh, audience? Well, I love the way you phrase that question. Normally, when I'm with investors, they say, some version of, don't you have too many brands? Which brand are you going to divest yourself (laughs) in? So I like that you're encouraging me to to add more. We really, the the nice thing about our scale is we don't feel the need to add brands just for the sake of growth. We really listen to what our customers and our owners and franchisees are asking for. That's what led us into the all-inclusive sector. We continue to see strong demand for luxury. So I think we'll look to see whether we have a robust enough portfolio of luxury brands. And in international markets, we've not been in the economy tier, but those are well-established tiers. And I think you'll see us evaluate that as well.
0: Will, those come, will changes come from acquisitions or from uh, Marriott developing brands?
1: It's a great question. We have competitors who say we never need to do M&A. Any new brand we do, we launch organically, and therefore, the returns are infinite. We've grown through a blend of both, and I think that will continue to be our opportunity. When we do an M&A transaction, though, there is some common DNA to those transactions. They tend to fill a geographic need where we've struggled mightily to grow one hotel at a time. Uh, we bought the biggest hotel company on the African continent called Protea Hotels, Prior to that that acquisition, we didn't have a single operating hotel in sub-Saharan Africa. But we also look at opportunities where we think it'll serve as a growth platform, whether that's a regional growth platform or a global growth platform. When we acquired AC Hotels, we did it principally because we were struggling to grow organically in Spain. But that's now a platform that is growing pretty impressively around the world.
0: So first, I'd like to express gratitude for your leadership in your response to, as a mom and as a woman, in your response to Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. I have two questions, and they might be equally hard for you to answer, but one's fun. So of all the properties that exist for Marriott, tell me the one that you love the most and why, and then how are you approaching sustainability transformation? And I understand that hospitality is sort of slow... And doesn't have the same regulatory responsibility at this time. Thank
1: you. Well, I suppose I could joke about you love all your kids the same, but I do have some favorite hotels. Although I can't give you one, I'll give you a city and a resort. I think my favorite city hotel in the world is the Ritz Carlton Kyoto in Japan. And my favorite resort is probably St. Regis in the Maldives, which is maybe a good pivot to your second question. (laughs) I torture our teams when I tour hotels around the world. Lately, the first thing I do is I check to make sure we have eliminated all of our single use plastics in the guest rooms and moved to bulk amenities. About this time last year at the SCIFT conference, I announced our commitment to get to net zero by 2050, but I was also quick to say I had the easiest part of that journey, which is making that announcement. Our journey towards net zero is made more complex by our business model. I don't have the ability to make many of the changes I'd like to make on a wholesale basis. I've got to build consensus among the owners of our 8,100 hotels. What I can tell you is that every constituent we serve as a company, our associates, our owners and franchisees, our guests, and ultimately our investors are demanding not just words, but they want us to set aggressive goals and they want progress reports on our progress towards those goals i'm going to get these numbers wrong but i think pre maybe five years ago we would get a few dozen customers who would ask for a copy of our sustainability record as part of their decision in booking (laughs) through the first half of this year we've gotten hundreds and so Our customers are demanding that we make measurable progress on the sustainability fronts. I talked earlier about the war for talent. Our prospective future associates are similarly demanding that progress. So it is a massive focus. Our board is keenly focused, but we also have to be realistic. To get to net zero, I'm confident we'll deliver everything that we can deliver. But obviously, municipalities around the world are going to have to make meaningful changes to their power grid for us to ultimately get to that that lofty aspiration.
0: I hate to say it, but with that, that is where we're going to have to end. We we could stay for another 45 minutes, but you have to run.
1: Well, thanks again for having (laughs) me. Thank you, Tony, for coming. Thank you, everyone,
0: for being here.